Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. All right, so we're going to have on today's show a repeat guest with the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, Joey Coleman, who was on episode 35 and talked with us on how do you create a great customer or donor experience, is back again. He has a new book that's coming out on June 27th, and he was generous enough to give me an advanced copy to read through before this interview. But just a quick little background on Joey. Joey is an author, a speaker, and he's a recognized expert on both customer experience design, but also how do you build a great employee experience. He's been an award-winning speaker. Joey specialized in creating unique, attention-grabbing customer and employee experiences, and he's worked with some of the biggest companies ranging from Fortune 500s to small startups and hundreds of mid-sized businesses in between. If you've listened to that last podcast, it's one of our top episodes, you know how he, Joey, really understands the customer experience. And it's going to be a treat to talk to him about how do you create that same value with the employee experience and break down his new book, which is called How to Never Lose an Employee Again. And again, that comes out on June 27th. So Joey, welcome to the show. Oh, Trevor, thanks so much for having me back. I so appreciate it. And thanks to everybody who's listening in. Uh, really appreciate your time and hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I sure, I'm sure i sure I'm going to. Well, it's glad to have you on, Joey. And you've written a great book that's so action-oriented and it breaks down like how to start with an employee, how to create this employee experience. And I just want to talk, you know, in the podcast, we typically discuss creating an excellent donor experience to increase donor retention, right? But Often the overlooked part of donor retention is consistency with the people who work in your fundraising team, those people who are making the ask, those people who are the support staff. So can you talk to us about how you see these similarities between the customer or the donor experience, but also with employee retention? Well, I think at the end of the day, Trevor, you know, humans are humans. Whether they are donors or whether they're employees, they're going to respond to the same type of emotional interactions, physical interactions, mental interactions, psychological interactions. And most organizations, especially nonprofits, spend a lot of time thinking about the donor experience. How are we tracking the donor experience? How are we marketing to them? When are we going to send them a message? What's the ask going to be this time? Do we hold off for the annual campaign or do we do this special campaign? And they spend so much time, effort, and focus on the external experience of the donors without spending as much time thinking about the internal experience of their employees, of their staff, of their team members. And you're absolutely right. The donor experience is often lessened because of turnover in the fundraising team or in the staff. And the person who's asking you for money and time and effort one day is a different person than is who's making the ask a month from now or three weeks from now or you know six months from now. And as a result, I think we have an opportunity to enhance the donor experience by doubling down on the employee experience. Well, that makes a lot of sense, Joey. So how do we go about doing that? I know in the last time you were on the show, you talked about this 100-day customer experience but how do you apply something like that to an individual employee, someone new you're bringing on to the organization? 
You know, it's interesting, Trevor, when I was writing my first book, Never Lose a Customer Again, I did all this research about why and when do customers leave? And the research kept coming back to it's the first 100 days, like a significant percentage, 20 to 70% of new donors decide to not make another donation to you before they reach the 100-day anniversary. You know, and we're all, anybody who's been in the nonprofit or fundraising world at any appreciable amount of time knows the number of single donors we have. They make a single donation. They never donate again. It's huge, right? What was interesting is when I started doing the research on the employee experience book, I found that that same 100-day experience held true. A significant number of employees will decide to quit a brand new job that they've just started before the 100-day anniversary. Average across all industries globally is 45%. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. 45% of new employees won't make the 100-day anniversary. In fact, 4% of new employees leave after just one day on the job. 4%. These numbers are staggering. And what we realized is the same journey that a donor might go through has parallels to the journey an employee might go through. They decide to accept our job offer. They show up for their first day on the work. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't what they were hoping it would be. They kind of get thrown in and they're trying to figure it out and they're trying to tread water and swim at the same time and they're feeling overwhelmed and we're continuing to drive our organization forward because we've got goals to hit. We've got programs to provide. We've got all these things and lots of times a new employee is left to flounder. And if we don't have the necessary support systems in place, if we don't hold their hand and help them navigate through that new employee journey with us, they're going to leave. And when they leave, that creates an even bigger problem because now not only do we have to go find someone new to replace them for the role that they just had, we've got to consider re-messaging that to our donors in our community because this person we just introduced as the new blah, blah, blah is now not there anymore. And we've got to have another person come in. And as if those two things weren't bad enough, the existing staff, the existing team members are going to have to pick up the slack for the work that new employee was going to do until a new employee gets hired. So now they're feeling overwhelmed. They're feeling resentful. You start to get some of them to decide, well, I don't want to be here anymore, and they leave. And this turns into a snowball that just escalates. There's a huge opportunity if we get it right to not only provide stability of experience on the donor side, but provide stability of morale and experience internally within the organization. So I bet a lot of people are thinking, okay, so we have like orientation program. We do, we do training, we have onboarding, we do all this stuff. Talk to us about, is that enough? Or what should people be thinking about? Like if you've convinced them on the problem, everyone's afraid of hiring that person, you get all excited, have them come in and then they leave. How do you start thinking about avoiding that from like the very first interaction? Well, I think there's two really interesting parts of your question, Trevor. Number one, this concept of orientation versus onboarding. And while a lot of folks use those phrases interchangeably, I think of them as two very distinct things. And then we've got this question of, well, we're already doing stuff, Joey. Isn't that enough? Let's come to that one second. First of all, on the orientation onboarding. Orientation is what happens if you go on a cruise, Okay, you go on a cruise, you get on the boat, and they say, hey, great, we're going to have a lifeboat drill. Over here's the dining room. Here's the bathrooms. Here's what happens if you hear this alarm. This is the time that the pool is open. They are details. They are logistical facts. They're important. But they don't build a sense of community. 
They don't build a sense of connection. Rather, they just help you check the box on some logistical things you probably need to know. Many organizations, quote unquote, onboarding is actually an orientation program where we're going to tell you what paperwork you have to fill out, how to get your paycheck, here's who you talk to if you want to take vacation, etc. Whereas onboarding is inviting in new employees using a structured series of contacts that are designed to create a warm, welcoming experience. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a whole system. It's a process. It's not one day. It's several weeks, if not months. It's designed to build connection. It's designed to build personal relationship between the organization and the individuals in the existing organization with this new employee. Even if we just took them at their definition, I imagine they feel very different. The same is true when you're experiencing them as a new employee. Now to the second part of that question, Trevor, when it's like, well, we already have this kind of program, Joey. Isn't that good enough? Well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask. I'd ask your new employees who are going through this experience. And what's interesting is when we look at all the research (laughs) that asks these folks, depending on the industry you're in, somewhere between 60 and 80% of new employees at the end of their orientation say, yeah, kind of really don't exactly know what I'm supposed to be doing. 60 to 80% go through an organization's program of onboarding and or orientation and come out at the other end saying, yeah, just not, not really getting it. Not sure I understand, not really convinced on what's going on. I guess I'll just figure it out as I go. So the question I think to ask would be, you get a new employee in the door, you run them through your program. Whenever that program ends, and for most organizations, statistically, it's less than 48 hours later. So stop and think about this. We want them to stay for years, and we're willing to invest a whole two days to get them up to speed, right? It's like, really? Come on. There's just some natural, logical disconnect there. But when you're done with the program, sit them down and say, okay, what are five things that you still have questions about? Now, the reason I'm asking for five is if you ask for one or two, you're going to get the easy layups. You're going to get like, oh, yeah, um you know, what exactly are the vacation holidays? And you're going to hear that and you're going to go, oh, well, we have this printout that tells you what the holidays are. Here you go. See, ta-da, we've solved the problem. But if you dive in deeper, you get to three ideas, four ideas, five ideas, you're going to start to get things like, I'm not exactly sure where my role fits in the bigger picture of the organization. I'm not exactly sure who I'm supposed to go to if I have a problem with X, Y, Z. If I'm interacting with a donor and this type of scenario happens, what am I supposed to do next? You'll actually get to the substantive questions that are open loops or points of worry or contention in the new employee's mind, and you'll be able to address them right away. Now, the really smart organizations are going to then take those questions and turn them into part of the onboarding program for the next employee. Because I guarantee, similar to, I don't know about the way you grew up, Trevor, but my parents always told me when I was growing up, hey, if you're out in a situation and you're the one that raises their hand and says, wait a minute, why are we doing this? What's going on? There's at least one other kid in the group that has doubts too. There's at least one of you, you know, peer pressure is a fabulous thing. It works in the employee experience as well. If you've got one employee saying, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do what our policy is, how I'm supposed to act, how I'm supposed to be thinking about this stuff, I guarantee there are other employees in your organization that have the same questions. 
that's such a great way to think about it and to like just really just sit down with your existing next person that comes in at the end of day one or day two, whatever it is, your orientation, just sit down, ask them that question, and you can see for yourself how it's going. Because that gives you a good benchmark and you can look at like, okay, where do we need to start? Now, if someone was starting from scratch, Joey, on like saying like, okay, we're going to look at every aspect of our onboarding system and we're going to like read your book and follow it (laughs) start to finish, where would you recommend they start? So I'd recommend they start in the first phase. I believe there are eight phases of the employee journey, Trevor. And the first phase is the assess phase. This is where a prospective employee is trying to decide whether or not they want to come work for you. I'd start there. These are things like the careers page on your website. Oh, and by the way, that cricket you just heard run by is the sound of the number of folks listening in that realize, oh, wait, we don't even have a careers page on our website, Joey. We're a nonprofit. We're not a corporation. Yeah. Do you employ people? Do you hope to employ people in the future? They're going to come to your website. They want to see what's it going to be like to work with you and for you. And who are my coworkers going to be? Looking at things like the job listing or the advertisement for the open position. Does it read like something interesting and exciting? Or does it read like it was written by a lawyer? I'm sorry, I'm a recovering attorney, so I can make fun of the lawyers. Lots of times our descriptions read like boilerplate drivel. They feel like they were written to check off a certain number of boxes as opposed to entice the person that this is the kind of place you want to work. I'd look at the interview process. Are the interviews designed to showcase the spirit of your organization? Or are they designed to check a box that we ask the same five questions we ask every candidate and hear their answers, and then we kind of just go with our gut, the one we liked the best? No strategy, no analytics, no real thoughtfulness as much as, well, in my gut, they seem like they'd be a good hire. That's fine, except most people's guts will tell them the wrong thing later when it becomes time to actually evaluate whether that hire lasted and whether that hire worked. And I imagine there might be some folks listening in that are like, oh, yeah, I really thought that was going to be a good employee, that one we hired who, you know, embezzled, who left, who, you know, was a toxic personality, whatever it may be. So we can think more strategically about the experiences we're creating before the person has even shown up for their first interview, let alone their first day on the job. It's really interesting because all these people in the assess phase, a lot of them we never see, right? The people who come to your website after seeing a job posting can't figure out what you do or can't figure out, you know, what the mission is and what it would be like if they clicked on a careers page. We're in the nonprofit world. You have a lot of people who work specifically because of the mission of the organization. So you could have some of the most compelling career pages and maybe you could even take part of your pitch that you use with donors and put sections of that on your careers page and get them excited from the very start before they even apply. Absolutely. And Trevor, isn't that what we want? Don't we want employees that are excited about the mission? I mean, this is kind of the core ethos of every nonprofit um, and every charitable organization on the planet. It's like we want people that believe what we believe, that this issue, this problem, this concern, this opportunity is worthy of our time, our effort, and our treasure. Great. Why aren't we sharing that with the people we're asking to be part of the mission? It seems counterintuitive, but regrettably, it's very common. And I think the opportunity here is to say, let's begin the conversation. Let's showcase our spirit. Let's showcase our organizational ethos before someone even applies, before they even get into a conversation with us. Because to your point, 
Now we have a filter that the person coming in has a much better understanding of who we are, why we exist, and what we're going to expect, not only of them, but what they can expect from us. This is a huge piece most organizations overlook. They'll do things like uh, salary commensurate with experience. What the heck does that mean? In fact, in some jurisdictions in the United States, it's now illegal right. <laughs> to do that, right? Okay, but here's the crazy thing. If you're not willing to say in the job listing, the, at the very least, the range of salary that's available, why aren't you willing to trust that employee? Why aren't you willing to say, hey, this is, these are our cards. We're putting them on the table. Here's what we're able to do. Because one of the first things an employee is going to be looking for is, is this job going to be able to cover my basic life expenses that I need? I get that every employee in the history of employees would like to be paid more than they're being paid. Okay, this is the human condition. But as an organization, you know what your budget for that role is. And you know that before the interview starts. So why not be transparent and tell the candidate that as well? Instead of playing this, you know, archaic game of, oh, let's make you dance. And then once you dance enough for me, then I might trickle out the bottom end of my range. Uh, and then if you push back in the negotiation, once you've got an offer, maybe I'll ease it up a little. Why not just say, hey, this is the range. And here's the criteria by which we're going to decide where you fall in the range. Now you're treating your employees like grownups before they even become employees. Right. And you're getting people who like to be treated that way to opt into your system, opt in at the front end. You have some great examples of kind of fun job listings where they show some personality in the book. And I really liked your point about thinking about it from the employee's perspective where they want to learn what does the job entail? What is the salary range before the organization? Because like they might be perfectly qualified, but like you said, not meet the income criteria so they can't apply. So like really even thinking about the formatting of your job listing and making that employee centric at the front end so you get good people to opt in, good people to apply, or you're putting it as employee focus right from the start. Trevor, you're, you're so spot on. And, and I think it's fascinating. It's like the things we know that we need to do with our donors, it's like we completely forget that when we're dealing with our employees. We forget that it's important to tell a story. We forget that it's important to be clear on what we're asking. You know, I, one of the things that I think is fascinating about setting up jobs descriptions for employees is, let's say, for example, that the position you're offering sounds absolutely incredible. It sounds amazing. I go into the interview. This sounds great. And then they say, Joey, we'd like to offer you the job. The job pays $100 a year. I don't care how amazing your job is. I'm not accepting your job offer. Not because I'm cheap, not because I'm entitled, but because it is darn near impossible to live in the United States on $100 a year, especially because I'm married and have two kids. Like, I mean, th this is just, and if you would have told me that in the beginning, we would have had a very different conversation. It's the same way of asking a donor. You're not going to ask every donor out there to donate a million dollars. Right. No, you're going to figure out where are they? What are they able to afford? What kind of causes do they do? Now, with some donors, the first ask at a million dollars might make sense. But for many, the first ask at a million dollars is going to be not only a flat-out no, you're never going to get them to pick up the phone or come to an event again to be pitched because it felt too much, too strong. With employees, lots of times it's too little, too early. 
right? You know, it's, it's not giving them enough context at the beginning of the conversation. That's such a good way to look at it on too low versus the too much, that uh, dichotomy there. So if someone's in the assess phase, they've put together a decent job description, added in a little personality, you can see the examples in your book, the second chapter, the assess chapter, go right into it. What do they do next? Like, how should they be thinking about the interview process, like going through that? Is there a kind of unique things you can be doing in this stage? I think there's a lot of unique things you can do in each stage, right? Because every interaction you have with a candidate, a prospective employee, or an actual employee is an opportunity to create a remarkable experience. Here's what happens in the typical interview. For those of you listening in, tell me if this sounds familiar to interviews you've been on. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. Followed by, so I see on your resume you worked here. What did you do there? What were your responsibilities? often followed by something like, where do you see yourself in five years? And maybe followed by a really insightful question like, tell me about a time when you didn't succeed and how you handled that. These questions, I understand the intention behind them, but practically, they're lazy. They're lazy questions because we've heard them in other interviews, so we think they make sense to ask them in this interview. But they don't give us answers that we can work with. I like asking questions that give me insight as to how you think, what you believe, how you learn, how you act. So for example, one of the questions that uh, I share in the book that I came across in my research is I'm asking a candidate, if I were to go and we were to look at your uh, computer at home, what are the open browser tabs that you have open? Hmm. That's a great question. And that's it. And see, the idea is some people will say, oh, man, I've got like 300 tabs open. Awesome. <laughs> tell me some right. of those. And then they tell you, oh, well, I've got Amazon open because, you know, it seems like we're constantly ordering on Amazon. And uh, I'm trying to keep teach my kids about investing. So I've got a stock tab open where I'm tracking a couple of stocks for my kids. And we're having these conversations about how the toys they play with are made by companies and how that leads to stock. And then, you know, I'm really into it's kind of weird, but I'm into Asian art from the 14th century. So I've got this window open where I kind of look at some artists that I follow over there. And, do, do. and suddenly you're having a conversation that, number one, that candidate has never been asked that question in an interview before. So you're automatically seeming unique and interesting to them. Number two, you're getting to see how they think in real time because they didn't prepare that answer. And they're giving you a lot more honest answer as a result. And number three, you're getting some insight. You know, if the person says, well, I actually don't have any tabs open. Oh, okay. Why is that? Get curious. Oh, well, because, you know, to be honest, it really feels unorganized to me when there are open tabs. So I have a process every day. I allocate 30 minutes at the end of my day to clean my desktop, both physically and digitally, to go through and either pocket and save any articles I wanted to read or email myself those links to my personal account at home so I can look at them later. You're learning about how they think and how they right. behave and how they act. It's not about getting the right answer to the what are the browsers that are open. It's about getting insight into how do you think, how do you behave, how do you act, because those are the valuable insights that will help me as a potential employer understand if you're going to be a good fit for the role we're interviewing you for. So talk to me about that distinction where in the book you talk about giving the interview questions ahead of time, but then you also have some that you kind of want to be unscripted. 
which are the ones you think about should be given ahead of time versus having a few in your pocket for the unscripted moments to kind of understand how they think? Yeah, well, Trevor, the, part of the reason I suggest giving questions before time, not really giving the answers, but giving the questions so they can work on their answers is because the interview setting is really a fiction compared to how most people work. You would not take a brand new employee and sit them in a meeting with your top longest serving donor without giving them context about who that donor was, what donations they'd made in the past, how they like to think about things, the type of projects that were, and programs that we're offering that they're most excited about. We would provide context. Very rarely are we parachuted into these scenarios where we have no idea who we're talking to, we have no idea what the agenda of topics is going to be, and we have no idea what is the criteria that they are evaluating us on. So why are we subjecting prospective employees to these scenarios that are not at all representative of the work we're going to be doing? What I might do if I'm, if I'm running a nonprofit and I'm hiring someone to come in, for example, for the fundraising team, one of the things I might say is, I'm going to give you the name of a local business person in our community. I want you to come to the interview ready to tell me three unique ways that we might pitch that person to come to our annual gala. Now, you've given them the assignment ahead of time. They understand the context of the question. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a much more accurate representation of what their job is going to be like than, tell me about a time when you failed and then overcame it? You know, yes, that's important to know, but it's such a better question to come at it a different way. Right. I do think that giving an idea of the candidate, at the very least of the topics that are going to be discussed or some of the questions is a great way to do it. And I agree that holding one or two questions back to see how they think in real time is really valuable. And I want to be clear, though, this is not about pulling one over on the candidate or getting the candidate caught off guard. This is about seeing how a candidate reacts with imperfect information in a time-condensed scenario. And the reason that's valuable is because there is not an organization on the planet in 2023, nonprofit or for-profit, that doesn't have unexpected, uncertain scenarios that they have to respond to in a condensed period of time. So we want to have some context for is the employee going to be able to roll with those type of scenarios and be able to react in those type of fluid situations. So then you can hold back some of the, uh, you know, uh, maybe more creative questions or the questions that are designed to see how someone thinks more than to understand their answer. Because I believe there are two types of questions. There's the question you ask where you're trying to elicit the answer. And then there's the question you ask where you're trying to see how they think mm -hmm. or how they act. To me, questions in the latter category are exponentially more valuable in your interview process. No, and that makes a ton of sense thinking about like what is a scenario they would encounter and just presenting that as, you know, here's some questions, but it's really to see do they do their homework? Do they come up with good ideas? And I love that example of like just picking somebody in the community and see what their research skills and all these different things are. It's just a really great way to think about it. So I want to just keep moving through this process because it's a lot of great information and we also have limited time. So I want to like <laughs> keep going, but I know people are taking a bunch of notes. You can tell I have some strong opinion on these I know, topics, and this Trevor. is great. No, 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 this is great. So 
you have a good interview, you ask some questions, and you have a whole bunch more details in the book on this. So again, go buy the book. Um, but you talk about this interesting part where you make an offer to somebody, and then there's what you call the quiet period between the offer and the acceptance, and then the start of the job. And I never really thought about that kind of dead zone or quiet period. But We've all experienced that where you're excited, you accept the offer, and then it might be four weeks, it might be six weeks, it might be two weeks before you start the job. Talk to us about how you create a good experience there. Oh, Trevor, I love this question because I think it's an opportunity uh, for us to explore a phrase that many of our listeners may not have heard before, but hopefully we'll never forget after today. Almost all of us are familiar with the concept of buyer's remorse, this scientifically proven experience that every human has when we make a purchase and we begin to doubt the decision we just made to make that purchase. I'd like to introduce everyone to this concept of new hire's remorse. It's exactly like buyer's remorse, but it applies to employees instead of donors or customers. And the way it works is an employee decides to accept your offer of employment and now they've got a lag period before their first day on the job. And during that quiet period between the euphoria of accepting the job and showing up for the first day at work, they hear nothing from you. And all that is left for their mind to think during this quiet period is, did I make the right choice? Did I accept the right offer at the right time? Should I have negotiated for more? I was interviewing for three other positions at the same time, and I hadn't heard from those other two, but I felt like I had this one in the hand, and oh, I, I accepted it, but what, what if one of those other ones might have come through? And that doubt, that fear, that uncertainty, which is scientifically proven to occur with a new employee, when they show up for the first day on the job, they're in the hole emotionally. They're doubting their first day on the job. We're thinking, oh, we're going to have a great first day on the job. You're going to love it. You're going to be so excited to work here. And they're like, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. It's possible, but what if not? And so the opportunity that is available to all employers is to think about that quiet period between the official acceptance of your offer and the first day on the job as a time period where you can communicate with the new employee in ways that keep their emotional excitement high, in ways that reinforce, reaffirm their decision to come work for you. This can be as simple as a video saying, hey, we're excited for your first day on the job. This can be sending them some swag so they've got, you know, some corporate gear or some, you know, nonprofit logo wear that they can do. This can be just sending a handwritten note that says, hey, I just wanted you to know we interviewed 37 candidates and we picked you. We are so excited to have you be part of this team. We know you're going to contribute an incredible amount, and we are thrilled that you're going to be starting up on the 14th. Can't wait to see you that day. Something as simple as that is not only going to be something that's going to have a huge impact on this new employee, but it's something that is going to set the tone for their emotional engagement and their emotional experience with our organization going forward. That's so interesting. And I, one thing that you brought up in the book when you're talking, I believe it was in this section where you're talking about this, is you say, like, if you're already doing all this good stuff with your donor retention, where you're creating this system, you already have these systems in place. So adapt them. So I was just thinking when you said the handwritten note, most nonprofits, if you've been 
like following our system or if you know, listen to your episode, uh, your last time you were on here, you know, you have the thank you sequence you do after a donor agrees and sends a check. You could just modify that system and you do a phone call, an email, a handwritten note and a letter to the employee during that down period between when they come. But I mean, like these things don't cost a lot and you're already doing them. So just modify something that's already working. Trevor, you are spot on. If you've spent all this time figuring out how to make a donor feel appreciated, just take those exact behaviors, switch them over to the employee, swap in the word thanks for donating to thanks for joining our team, and you're probably pretty good. You right. know what I mean? This, this doesn't require huge investments of time and effort and money, but what it does require is an investment of thoughtfulness. It does require you to think about the emotional experiences you are creating for the people who have entered your orbit and are now in relationship with you, whether that's a donor or an employee. It's not rocket science. It's just about showing people that they matter and that you care and that you're excited that they're part of the conversation going forward. And to that, like just add to that, you highlight at the end of every chapter kind of six ways they could implement this and your six things, these six keys you have, and you can tell us about them, but they're all don't cost anything really. They're just time commitments, a little bit of time. So all the people on the, who are listening, like, oh, well, we don't have big budgets. We don't, we're barely <laughs> getting by. Like all of this is really inexpensive, but you, you do a nice job in each chapter breaking down like, okay, Here's some ideas on how to do it. Here's some case studies to get your creativity going so you can apply it yourself. Oh, well, I appreciate that, Trevor. Yeah, one of the things that I wanted, I, I, I didn't, I believe there are three types of writers and speakers, right? There are writers and speakers who make you think differently, writers and speakers who make you feel differently, and writers and speakers who make you act differently. And while I certainly want anybody listening to our conversation today or reading the book to think and feel differently, if you don't act differently, I haven't earned your investment of your time and your attention. So I really wrote the book as a playbook that you could apply directly to your organization. Now, two things I'll say. Number one, there's over 50 case studies from every industry imaginable from all seven continents, right? So there's something in there for everyone. Number two, some people might look at it and say, but Joey, a lot of your examples are corporations. They're companies. You don't understand. We're a nonprofit. No, I get it. I do understand that you're a nonprofit, but here's the thing. You can take those same behaviors and to your point, Trevor, apply them in your organization at very low cost. I believe there are six tools you can use to communicate with your new employees and your donors for that matter in the first hundred days of the relationship and beyond. Real quickly, those six tools are as follows. In-person interactions. Are we capitalizing on our time where we're actually physically in the same room as that person? Whether they're coming to our offices or we're meeting for a lunch or we're at an event, what are we doing to make those interactions meaningful? Number two, email. No one wants to be getting more email. Literally no one on the planet wants more email. What they want is better email. What they want is email that is more focused, email that is more intentional, email that is more interesting and exciting to read. When I say an exciting email to read, something just popped into everyone's mind. That one friend they have or an organization that sends them emails that they're like, man, I read all of their emails. I just like it. I like the way they write. I like that they make me smile. They make me laugh. They make me tear up, whatever it may be. We should have our employees reacting to our emails the exact same way. 
Third example, uh, phone calls, right? The ability to actually text your employees. Now, this is something novel in many nonprofit settings. They're like, well, we text our donors, but texting our employees? I mean, we text them to tell them, you know, when they have to be at work or, you know, that uh, the office is closed for the day or whatever. I'm, no, I'm talking about personal text. I'm talking about a, about a text on the three-day weekend that comes in on Sunday saying, how is your Memorial Day going? I'm talking about a, a text that comes in an unexpected time that says, hey, I want you to know I'm just so thankful for the contributions you're making to our organization. You are putting in extra hours. We really appreciate it. I know it's crazy right now with the annual campaign, but oh, we so appreciate all your continued efforts and commitment to the organization. We couldn't do this without you. That little text message moves the dial in an incredible way. We also talk about physical mail, right? That's another one of the tools. We send things to our donors. Why don't we send things to our employees? Something to think about. We print these beautiful annual reports and these gorgeous thank you notes and these amazing invitations to attend annual events. And we absolutely have no problem sending them to prospective invitees. But we don't send those to our own employees? What's that all about? We don't invite our employees to come and bring a plus one? Well, no, you need to come and work or, oh, we don't want them to come because we're paying like $100 a plate. We, you know, the employees, you all stay home. No, bring your people. Let them be part of this celebration. Let them connect with the people they're serving. Huge opportunities. So we've talked about in-person. We've talked about email. We've talked about phone. We've talked about snail mail. The other options, two ideas we have are video. So creating videos for individual folks as opposed to just videos that go on your website. So shooting a little selfie video, telling someone how much they matter to you. And last but not least, gifts. And by the way, pro tip, if it has the logo of your organization on it, it's not a gift. Sorry, I hate to break it to you. I'm not against swag. I'm not against items that have our logo on them. I'm against you giving that to an employee and think you're giving them a gift. You're giving them a uniform. You're giving them something to have in their house that reminds them more of their work. I don't think they need more reminding of where they spend the majority of their day. They need a reminder that you see them as a person. I believe that the top employers in the future are going to be the ones that pay as much attention to what goes on to their employees' lives between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. as they do to what goes on in their employees' lives between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Why is it that as employers we think, well, when they go home, they just do their thing, whatever, and they have that's a separate life, that's independent, and then they come back here. No, it's the same human, folks. It's the same right. life. And the things that are affecting their personal life are going to spill into their professional life. The things that are affecting their professional life spill into their personal life all the time. And we never feel guilty about that. But man, do we get up in arms when, you know, if they've had a bad time with their spouse and they come to work and they're kind of in a cranky attitude, we're like, oh, why don't they just leave that at home? Weird. We think nothing of them going home after being completely fried working on an annual campaign for us to try to then interact with their spouse, with their children, whatever it may be, their roommates. We think nothing of spilling over that way, but we get frustrated when it spills over into, quote-unquote, our world. Stop it. We can do better. We should expect better of each other and ourselves. It's, you make a lot of good points there. 
aside from I think a lot of uh, swag vendors being disappointed uh, by your rant about the uh, <laughs> logo. Well, and I used to, in full defense and full disclosure, I used to be a promotional products distributor, right? Okay. So I get this. I am again. So you're against lawyers not, and these. No, I, I, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'm against them behaving in ways that aren't in the best interest of the people they serve whether that's right. a lawyer or a promotional products distributor. I have no problem with you putting your logos on things. But two thoughts. Number one, make sure it's awesome swag. Stop doing cheap pens and stupid mouse pads with your logo. If you're going to give someone a pen, give them a pen that they're like, oh, my God, this is the best pen I've ever received. Put your logo on that pen. If you're going to give them swag, you know, clothing to wear, give them a piece of clothing that they're like, oh, my gosh, I will totally wear this. And make the logo small. Okay? The size of your logo is not commensurate with the value of your organization. In fact, if you think about like a, a brand that most people are familiar with, Ralph Lauren, look at the size of the little polo pony in comparison to the entire shirt. It's not a gigantic logo. It's this tiny little thing that if you know, you know. And if you're close enough to see it, you go, oh, yeah, I get it. Make your swag something that has people come up and go, where did you get that shirt? And they say, oh, actually, I got this shirt from my employer. We're a nonprofit. This is what we do. That's much more interesting than having someone walk around in a giant T-shirt with your logo on it, which, by the way, they're never going to wear in public. It's going to become their workout shirt or the shirt they give to their kids to paint with when they're at school. Okay? Just think a little more strategically. And we all have drawers full of those shirts. Drawers, <laughs> drawers. It's ridiculous. It's such. Yeah. A, I mean, we're not even getting into the environmental right. impact of this. It's just not smart business. Well, I think one of the interesting things you just said too was this whole letting we worry about personal life spilling into work, but not, you know, when work spills into the personal life. In one of the points you bring up, you have a great. We we don't have time to go into it, but you have a great overview of what to do on the first day. But one of the things you end with or not you end that first day with is thinking about giving them something to talk about with their spouse when they go back to their personal life or you know they have their work life you know and you go back home talk to us a little bit about that as we're wrapping up because uh, we're almost out of time but tell us about how do you create like that memorable experience for when they go home yeah i love this question trevor you know there's a classic bonnie Raitt song let's give them something to talk about right and everybody listening in sorry for that earworm that's now in your head but it's such a great reminder for the first day on the job most people have had this experience they show up for the first day on the job and they get to the front desk of the office they're going to and they say oh i'm here it's my first day and the receptionist doesn't seem to know that it's their first day or who they are. And then they call to the manager who's going to be, you know, responsible for this person and the manager's out that day on site with a client. So then a junior HR person comes out and is like, oh, hey, sorry, a little confusion about your first day. Uh, hey, hey um, here's the thing. Let's go into this boardroom. I've got a binder here for you to read through a bunch of our policies. It's our corporate employee handbook. And then I'm going to put some videos on about um, harassment in the workplace that were filmed in the 70s. And you go ahead and watch these and I'll come back at lunch to take you to a lunch with your team who doesn't know that today's your first day. They know nothing about you, but they're all friends and have been working together for years. So they're going to sit at one end of the table and talk to each other about things you don't know or understand. And you're going to awkwardly sit here. Then after that, we're going to bring you back to the boardroom. Uh, you can read through some more stuff. We'd give you your desk, but your computer isn't set up yet. So um, we'll just, you know, why don't you go ahead and head home? We'll see you tomorrow for day two. That's like every job. First job, day of the job. This yeah. has happened to everyone listening. 
everyone listening has had that type of horrible first day on the job experience. What is pathetic is that I can put out a generic experience like that, and so many people listening are like, yep, I worked at that place. How did you know I worked there, Joey? It's I knew you worked for an employer in the last 40 years, (laughs) right? right? This is just the human condition. So what if we made it different? What if our entire intentionality around the first day was to have them open the door when they got home to either their parents, their roommate, their spouse, their significant other, their kids, whoever it is that's at their house, or if they live by themselves while they're driving home and they call that person that they love, they care about, what is the first question that person is going to ask? They're going to say, how was your first day at work? How do you want them to answer? Do you want them to talk about boring old videos and policy handbooks and people not anticipating that they were going to be there? Or do you want them to say, I think I may have found the place where I'm going to work for the rest of my life. This place is amazing. They knew me. They saw me. I pulled up and my boss was waiting out front. They had a, you know how lots of places have guest parking for their customers up front? They had a whole custom sign that said, first day on the job, Joey Coleman. And they had a little special spot for me. And when I parked my car and I got out, my boss was right there. And he walked me in and he said, first things first, I'm going to take you around and introduce you to the team. And as I walked around and started meeting the other people on the team, it was clear that they knew a little bit about me. They're asking things about my background and my career and my history and my interests and my likes, things that were on my resume, things that are on my LinkedIn profile. It's like they were ready for me. And not only are they asking questions, but they're sharing points of commonality that they have. Oh, you're a Notre Dame fan, Joey? I am too. Oh, you sang in choir in high school? I did too. And so I'm feeling all these points of connection. And then they were showing me the inner workings of the company and how my role was going to contribute to the success of what we were doing. Then we went to a one-on-one lunch with my boss where they sat down and he said, what are your dreams for this job, Joey? My job is to serve you. My job is to make sure that this is the greatest place you ever work in your life. If there were three things I could do in the next 60 days to make that happen, what would those three things be? I was interested and was curious. Then they brought me back in the afternoon and they had me do substantive work. I'm going to be working on fundraising campaigns. So they put me into a meeting and we started hashing out a campaign. And I got to get up on the whiteboard and draw some of my ideas and share some of my thoughts. And they're actually going to try one of them in the next. I mean, this nonprofit's been around for 40 years. I've been here for four hours and they're going to try one of my ideas. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. And then as I was leaving, my boss walked me to my car again at the end of the day and just said, oh, man. This, I hope you've had as much fun today as we did having you be part of the team now. Now imagine how that person answers the question when they open the door and their loved ones say, how was your first day on the job? It's a very different conversation. And you're sell, like when you're retelling, if you have an amazing day like that, you keep selling yourself on the organization. You're saying how great it is. And then they're like, then they're telling the story, your parents, your spouse, whatever, is telling the story to other people because that is the question everyone asks. Like, how did it go? How was that first day? Exactly. And here's the thing. When you start telling that story at home and your loved ones start telling that story, guess what? Now they're saying, hey, Joey, is it, uh, any other open positions at that place? And now your employees become your biggest recruiters. One of the things, I'll close on this if I may, Trevor, the last phase in the eight phases is the advocate phase. 
And lots of times when I meet with leaders, they're like, oh, we've got good advocates in the organization. I'll be like, great. How many open positions are you hiring for right now? And they're like, oh, four or five. I said, why do you have open positions if you have advocates? Good question. They're like, well, well uh, and I was like, because if you have true advocates, these people are dying to get their friends, their family, their coworkers, their best friend from college, the person they knew in high school that was a rock star. They're doing everything they can to actively recruit into this organization because they're so bought in, they so believe it. They are becoming your uncompensated, out in the world advocates singing your praise and heavily recruiting. Oh, maybe we need a different definition of what it means to advocate for an organization, okay? An advocate isn't somebody who's still there after four years. An advocate is someone who is actively promoting and driving new opportunities, new talent, new ideas to the organization. That's great, Joey. I think we've only covered four of your eight steps uh, with this interview, but I encourage people, go out, buy your book. It comes out on June 27th. It's called How to Never Lose an Employee Again. And Joey, we make this podcast about taking action. So what's one thing you'd like people to do after listening to this podcast, besides buying your book, of course, but what's the one action you want them to take? And then how can they get in touch with you? Okay, Trevor, here's the one thing. And I'm going to throw a gauntlet down because I know from our conversations, you've got awesome listeners who actually take action, right? There's some podcast listeners that are like, eh, whatever, I just listen to the show while I'm commuting, while I'm exercising, while I'm doing the dishes. No, I know the listeners to the Seven Figure Podcast are all about what can I do to move the dial? So here's what I would suggest. Take out your phone. Flip the camera to selfie mode and shoot a little selfie video doesn't have to be longer than one minute to one of your employees. And the video is as simple as this. Hey, Trevor, just wanted to shoot this quick little video for you. I was listening to this podcast and the guy threw down a challenge and he asked us, who is the employee on your team that you couldn't exist without? Who is the employee that brings so much value, so much care, so much attention to your nonprofit that your nonprofit would not be able to have the success it has in the world serving the communities it serves if they weren't part of the team. And he asked me to think of who that person was. And I immediately thought of you. Thanks for everything you do. It means the world to us. I'll see you at work tomorrow. That's it. That simple. Here's the thing, friends. Not only will they watch that video, they will watch it more than once. They will share it with their loved ones. On times when they're having a struggle at work, when they're thinking about quitting, when they're frustrated, they'll go back and they'll rewatch that video. There is a huge opportunity to let people know how much they matter to us. I hope you'll take that opportunity and pick up the gauntlet I just threw down. If you're interested in learning more about this stuff, you can find me at joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a baby kangaroo. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. joeycoleman.com. The book is called Never Lose an Employee Again. As Trevor mentioned, it comes out on the 27th. If you liked the sound of this interview, there's an audiobook that I narrated. If you're more of an ebook person, you can highlight in your Kindle as you go or your Nook. And if you want the hardcover version, that's available too wherever books are sold. If this issue is interesting to you, I encourage you to give the book a try because there's a promise in the book. If you buy the book and it doesn't work for you and you don't feel like you're getting the value, just send me an email and I'll refund the cost of the book. 
That's how confident I am that this book can produce action for you, that this book can produce the type of employee experiences that will not only keep your employees coming back for more, but more importantly, will allow you to achieve the goals that your organization has. Everybody listening to this podcast is doing big, important work in the world. It's the nature of the nonprofit world. I want you to succeed, and I don't want your lack of being able to find great employees to be part of your mission, to be the reason you fail. So give it a try. I think you'll find that it's easier to create remarkable experiences for your employees than you might have thought. Well, that is a great episode, Joey. And I just appreciate working with you and doing another interview. You live what you talk and it's always a great experience. And even the interview and getting it booked was fabulous experience with your team. So thanks for being on the show. And it's just wonderful talking with you again and go buy that book. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're interested in our upcoming workshop, visit our website at sevenfigurefundraising.com. We conduct these workshops twice a year in March and September, and we've broken these workshops up so you can take them live online with six two-hour courses spread over three weeks. We'll send you a workbook and other class materials to make it really easy for you to follow along. In fact, this is what one of our students, Austin, said about his experience in our workshop. Hi, my name is Austin Brooks. I'm an executive director of a nonprofit called Midland Institute for Entrepreneurship. I took Seven Figure Fundraising 18 months ago. And since that course, um, two things I want to share. One is the results. Two is what I didn't expect. And the results as a nonprofit, even though we reach into 10 states, even though we're working in 320 high schools, um, we've always had a pretty small donor base. And what's been so powerful in the results that we've seen since this course is I've successfully been able to recruit and add some new donors that had never previously been given to our organization. And then more importantly, there's this idea that's gonna be shared in this course called the dynamic dozen. You have to take the course to figure out what it's about. But within our dynamic dozen, we had five donors increase their giving in a big way. And between that and the new donors, this has been a game changer for our growing nonprofit. But the second thing that I really took away that really matters is just the mindset shift. What I wasn't expecting was how much my mindset needed to shift, how much I had to shift my poverty thinking or my scarcity mindset to realizing that whether there's a recession, whether we lose a couple donors, if your organization is doing good work, more people need to know about it. And so the confidence that I gained in terms of talking to high level individuals who believe in our mission has just grown. And what's been more um, impressive than anything is the proof has been in the actual donors we've gained. So if I can do this, I believe you can. You can't miss this course. You got to take it. If you're interested in attending, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. We hope to see you there. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take 60 seconds to leave a review. Thanks a lot and good luck with your fundraising.